You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So it's such an extraordinary thing that you would come and practice, um, particularly in our culture, um, where these kinds of things are not highly valued. Uh, so I really appreciate that you've come. And um, it suggests that, that you've considered a way to organize your practice, which I think is, a, is also a useful consideration. What is it that you're doing? What is it that you want to get out of this? Um, my teacher, Shinzen, is an enlightenment-oriented teacher, and uh, I, when I came to practice, was looking for that. And uh, um, I tend to teach uh, that to a, a quarter of the people who come and to the other three-quarters of people I talk about uh, relational mindfulness and looking at how we're, how we've constructed the working model of ourselves and how we construct the working model of everyone else. Um, in in uh, Buddhist lens, of course, we're just talking about conditioning. How have you been conditioned? Um, can you arrive in a place uh, where you just are willing to see the way that you're conditioned from a place of equanimity, a place of neutrality, to just see where you where you are, how uh, your life has unfolded, how the choices that you have made for yourself when you were in a position to make them uh, have affected the trajectory of your life, and how the early conditioning, in particular, affected the way that you you were able to make those decisions. Can you simply allow all aspects of yourself into consciousness without needing to repress some of those, without needing uh, to condemn aspects of yourself? Can you really come into this place of radical acceptance? This is what's happened. These are the decisions I've made. They have led me here. Uh, the great advantage of that, of course, is that you can see clearly where you are so that you can begin to take actions that will further your own interest, further the own meaningfulness of your lives, and that if you're unwilling to do that, if you're unwilling to actually see yourself clearly, see where you're at, see how you operate, then you're constantly operating uh, uh, from a place of blindness. So you don't really see what's motivating you. You don't really see what interests you, what you really want. Um, I'd like to say it's a short, brutish life that we all lead. <laughs> and that there's no time to waste in, uh, in uh, opening up to yourself, seeing clearly who you are. And then being able to see what prevents that from happening. Is it afflictive guilt? Is it shame? Is it regret, remorse? 
are those the things that dominate uh, whenever you try to touch in. I often talk about the terrible sadness that arises in us, the accumulated uh, losses that we've been unable to address because we are unable to touch into them. I read a poem this morning. I think I'll read it again. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture still. Treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight, the dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So each of these moments, a joy, a depression, a meanness, can you uh, greet them with this kind mind, this open-heartedness, all aspects, welcoming them in, not condemning any aspect of yourself, So much of the aspects of ourselves that we condemn are the ones that were condemned for us when we were young. Um, Not that they're condemnable per se, just that in the relationship with our primary caregiver, our secondary caregiver, the other people who were important to us, uh, they, in the interaction between us, found them in some way objectionable or painful or threatening or uh, desirable. And so we, uh, if we don't examine all of this, may have created a a hierarchy of our own traits based on the uh, experiences that we had with other people. And so uh, in this early practice of metta, we come uh, to a place of Uh, this kind acceptance of ourselves as we are. To find the place where we're beginning, to find the place where we are so we know how to travel forward from here uh, without needing to leave anything behind, without needing to leave anything out of consciousness. Um... Do you notice whether or not the mind that you have treats you kindly? Or is it critical or judgmental or condemning? Would you say that the mind you have treats you with loving kindness all of the time? Or less than that? (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) So, Really, what, what I'm suggesting is that you can undertake the practice of metta and that you can recondition the mind in such a way that it is always responding to you with kindness. It, rather than it being your enemy or, or something difficult, it becomes your great ally, your great friend, or your great companion. And this is really... Uh, comes about through a relentless practice of reconditioning the mind. You simply 
um, monitor the, the content of thought enough to know what it is, and if you find that the mind is uh, unkind, that you prevent it from doing that. It's, in some sense, a straight-up thought replacement. The unkind thought arises in the mind. You recognize that that's what it is, and you suppress it and replace it. This turns us, in some sense, to the emotional regulation system that we have. Um, most of the thoughts that are unkind are also perseverating or repeating thoughts, and they're really uh, a way that we regulate our emotional experience. Most of us will have learned these strategies early on in childhood, and if you don't examine them, they're very stable, and you'll use them your whole life. Um, one of my favorite um, Zen sayings is, what water asked the fish? If you've been listening to the content of your mind since you were old enough to remember anything, then it just seems normal. We may even think that everyone does that. Um, but really what's happened is we've learned in our family systems how to regulate emotion. Not only that, we've We've learned what emotion is. That what, what we call in our family system certain emotions are not what everybody calls them. How does this happen? Well, you're, you're uh, born into the world and you're completely dependent on someone taking care of you. You call out to the world for someone to help you. You call out not because you know specifically what you need, only that there's some uncomfortable sensation in the body and you don't know what to do. And you call out to the world for someone to come. You're not calling out anyone specifically, you're just calling out. Um, really, between five and eight months old is when you figure out uh, that there's uh, somebody in particular to call for. Before that, your brain isn't developed well enough and you're just calling out. Can you imagine the state of vulnerability that you're in when you are completely helpless, helpless to the point that you can't even bowl yourself over? You know, do you have a sense of what, what it is to be an infant? Uh, you don't even know what's happening, you just feel a sensation in the body and you call out to the world uh, to come and help you. You don't really even know that there's a world or that that's what you're doing. You're just uh, being in this state of vulnerability, calling out for someone to come. And then you have the experience of what happens in response to that. If someone comes and they pick you up and they attune to you and they're capable of empathetically connecting to you, and they touch into you and they understand your communication well enough that they know what to do and then they're resourced enough that they're able to do it, then you have a sense of uh, control. You have a sense of competence that you've been able to call out and the world has responded by meeting your needs. This is actually a pretty low bar. The, the studies are showing that uh, in order to have a sense of security in yourself, uh, somebody has to get that right about 
30% of the time, or better. 30% is a kind of low bar. But still, with a low bar like that, that doesn't happen for everybody. And so if you call out to the world in this place of such extreme vulnerability and the world responds in a different way, then you develop a working model of yourself differently than uh, somebody who's capable of getting their needs met. And depending on how that pattern of experience happens, you'll construct this idea about yourself. What I'm suggesting is that this idea that you constructed of yourself at six months old may need some updating. (coughs) The reason that I'm such an advocate of meditation is because we're bio, uh, biochemical beings. We're basically little bags of seawater that walk around. Um, When you're born, your brainstem is intact, your midbrain is partially formed, and your your frontal cortexes are not formed. Uh, So that we're one of these unique creatures that is very uh, subject to environmental influence. Our emotional system, the stability of it or erratic nature of it uh, develops based on our uh, conditioning. The physical, the actual physical structure of it develops based on our conditioning in a way that's much more profound than than, um, beings that are born with intact developed brains. The frontal cortex is developed entirely in response to the environment that we're in. So we, we in some sense, grow our conditioning. So it isn't possible for us simply to say, I'm going to change my mind about that, because we have a conditioned brain that's physical in its nature, physical in its capacity to respond. And so we need to practice in a way that we're able to recondition the actual physical structure of the brain. So in the beginning, what you'll notice in your practice is you're constantly being confronted by the return to the same responses, the same thoughts, the same actions in the world. And this is because uh, that's the physical structure of it. So the joyfulness of this is also that the physical structure of the brain is plastic and subject to the conditioning environment so that we can practice in such a way that the structure of the brain changes and so our automatic responses are different. So if you look at the the progression of change First, you have to recognize that you're operating on automatic and switch over to manual. And then you have to operate from manual long enough that the automatic processes of the brain take it up. So, in some sense, we're talking about two kinds of memory. One is autobiographical or chronological, and one is procedural. 
these responses, these automatic responses that we make to so much of what happens are procedural memory. And one of the wonderful things about practicing meditation is that meditation affects the procedural memory. Uh, if uh, This is, uh, in some sense, one of the reasons why I like the dry metta practice uh, better than the wet metta practice. The wet metta practice engages biographical or chronological memory, uh, your cognitive ability. And meditation uh, in a concentration-oriented dry way of practicing affects the procedural memory. So that if you tell yourself a story that generates a positive feeling, even if you stay in the present moment, it's a cognitive feature. Maybe you're aware of this, uh, but what happens to your cognitive features when you get stressed? If you noticed an inverse proportional relationship between stress and your ability to think clearly? So that if you're developing practices that are largely embedded in chronological memory, they're only available to you in low-stress situations. Even a medium level of stress will affect your ability to remember to use them. In a moderate or high level of stress, you won't have that function at all, really. You'll just have your procedural memory. So that if you haven't done a practice that embeds itself in the procedural memory, in a stressful situation, you won't have uh, the skill that you've developed. This is not to say that you shouldn't develop cognitively-based skills. They're very useful if you're in a low-stress situation. But if you don't uh, put in the effort to, to train the mind uh, procedurally, you're going to be using the skill set that you developed early uh, and may have added to. Somebody comes, they look into your eyes, they attune to you, they feel you empathetically, they, they understand what you want, and then they provide that for you. And you develop a sense of yourself based on how well you did. Um, how much better do you think you could have done at six months old? Or eight months, or ten months, or a year old? In, uh, I like to talk about attachment theory, and the first time that they do the strange situation is, which is the way they evaluate what your attachment strategy is, is at ten months old. At ten months old, you've already made up your mind about yourself, how competent you are. You've already made up your mind about how the world is. Can you tell me what you could have done better at ten months old? I sort of find this funny, but could you have crawled over and sat your mom and dad down and said, Gaga goo goo. <laughs> Would that have been enough to get them to change their uh, parenting strategies with you? I had a Christmas uh, Eve uh, dinner with uh, a family I've been going to uh, uh, since before they were there were children, and now um, the older boy is eleven, and the twins are eight. 
And I find that I enjoy it more because they can talk and use words and, and ideas. And um, I enjoyed them when they were young, but it was kind of a chaotic energy. Um, the the two, the, there are boy and girl twins, they ran in the door screaming, it's a fiasco, it's a fiasco, it's a fiasco, which I find hilarious. They said, what exactly is a fiasco? And they said, I don't know. Uh, they went uh, shopping with their dad, and when he got into the supermarket, he kept saying, it's a fiasco. <laughs> <laughs> such such uh, joy, right? So, here we are going to be practicing metta for for days, this constant practicing, really paying attention to the mind, seeing what's coming up, um, directing the mind over and over again. Uh, In in, uh, Myanmar, the the Sayadaw finds this completely hilarious when he's addressing uh, Westerners to talk about a dog on a leash. Um, you would get the joke if you went there because nobody keeps dogs. They just roam in the street. Uh, uh, and uh, when he comes here, he finds people walking their dogs absolutely hilarious. We went to um, Central Park and <coughs> a dog walker came by and, and probably eight or nine dogs and he just, he ran after her. I've never seen him run before. So he could get a picture of somebody walking eight or nine dogs. And then one of the dogs pooped, and the dog walker picked it up, and he was belly laughing. (laughs) And his translator came over and delivered the message that he wanted me to know, which was, Dogs have really good karma here. (laughs) (laughs) So, we practice. In um, Myanmar, there's very little explanation about practice. It's just, this is what you do, now go do it for eight hours and come back and we'll talk about what happened. Um, but I, I want to be encouraging of this in particular. I want, I really do want you to get to a place where your mind is automatically kind to you. But in the beginning, uh, the automatic part will just be the way that it is. And so you want to pay attention to that so that each time the mind does that, you can stop it from doing that and replace it. This is really the way that you train it. As the Sayadaw would say, <clears throat> you pull on the leash to redirect the dog to where you want it to go. So if he's going to eat some garbage, which you know will be terrible, you pull on the leash and direct him or her somewhere else. So in a sense, what you're doing with your own mind is this. Each time you notice it's going toward something afflictive, you pull it away and direct it toward something beneficial. <clears throat> In, in the process of using self-generated emotion, what you're doing is masking a discomfort with the present moment with the thoughts that generate a masking feeling. So 
the present moment emotion plays on the surface face, front of the throat, front of the torso, inside of the arms, and inside of the legs. It's a kind of vibratory energy which you know to be emotion. What emotion really is, is this body-mind evaluating what's happening, then making a choice about what to do, and as the body prepares for that action, you feel those sensations in the body, then you've identified that particular preparation for a possible action as a kind of emotion, one flavor or another. If the mind uh, says run, then you notice all the blood rushes to the legs, there's a big blast of adrenaline and endorphins uh, so that you can flee. If the the body-mind says freeze, then you'll notice that all of the blood rushes out of the limbs into the organs where it's being stored. If the mind says fight, you'll notice the blood rushes to the upper body, into the arms, more adrenaline, more endorphins, so that the, the sense of pain in the body is killed. A lot of people find anger rewarding because there's a lot of endorphins associated with anger. It's a kind of buzz that you can get out of it. So something happens in the present moment, there's a reaction to it, and then the mind calculates what the response is going to be, and then it prepares to take the response. And that's the emotion that you feel. Uh, If you think a thought, uh, this is different than the Western idea of emotion. Uh, we, We suffer from this split between reason and feeling, reason and emotion in the West. But in Buddhism, all, uh, in Buddhist thought, all thoughts have an emotional component. So a visual, internal visual, an internal auditory, and a feeling in the body. So that if something happens in the present moment and and the reaction to it is a discomfort, the mind can easily think a thought that will generate an emotional experience that masks the underlying disquiet of the present moment. It pulls you out of it and displaces awareness of it. Because the conditions of the present moment change so frequently, the automatic responses that the body-mind engages in change as well, so that the mind can generate a thought long enough to completely mask an experience of the present moment. If you're caught up in thinking, you're out of the present moment. One of the things uh, that's... uh, so apparent in practices, the more time you're able to spend in the more the present moment, the happier you are, because happiness is only in the present moment. So that the more time you're able to keep yourself in the present moment, the happier you become. Uh, another advantage of the dry metta practice is that it is organized around uh, the present moment. Um, There's very little risk in practicing uh, dry metta that you'll get caught up in the near enemy of sentimentality. Um, It's easy enough to get uh, lost in a narrative that's producing positive feeling states, positive emotional states, and think that that actually is the practice of metta, when actually it's the practice of sentimentality. So, a lot of what we're doing in this practice of metta is developing a, a 
capacity in procedural memory to regulate emotion through kindness. And what you're going to find is that if you've been using, say, anger uh, since the first months of your life to regulate your emotion, that it works incredibly well. Three or four words into the narrative that you use to generate anger and the body is already filling with anger, totally displacing awareness of the present moment that's so uncomfortable. Using a metta practice, of course, you're not leaving the present moment, so you're not moving away from the discomfort. So it's harder to work. And you may not be able to generate the intensity of a positive feeling enough to displace the difficulty. We're not generating the story in the usual way of emotional regulation of trying to displace it. What we're trying to do is be able to be in the experience of the present moment and not need to get away from the disquieting feeling. But to be concentrated enough that the the experience of that causes a counteracting blissful experience. So this is a discussion around uh, metta jhana. The uh, um, the practice of metta jhana is this highly concentrated uh, practice. The um, there's five aspects of metta jhana. The first jhana. This is the same as vipassana jhana. You want to place your attention where you want to put it. In this case, on the mind state of metta. You want to sustain awareness of that. So each time the mind wanders off, you bring it back. Each time it wanders off, you bring it back. Um, You'll notice that there's an energy or a rapture that overtakes the body. This is called piti. So, uh, vikara is to place your attention in Pali, vitaka is to sustain your attention. Piti is this energy that arises in the body from becoming concentrated. Sukha is an emotional response to piti and is <coughs> often translated as bliss. <coughs> When you settle into these highly concentrated states of metta, the experience of bliss that arises is much greater than anything that you could generate through a narrative. It is an intensely blissful experience. And then you become one-pointed. One-pointedness means that the mind settles in, in this case, on the mind state of metta. (coughs) 